This is episode number 25 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the bi-weekly program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective, because unfortunately no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. The liberal mainstream media cannot be objective, and the conservative now state-run media has been completely compromised. We, however... At the Individual One Podcast have most definitely not been co-opted. Welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter at the handle at Individual One Pod. That's Individual, the number one pod. So much to get to on this weekend edition of the Individual One Podcast, coming to you a day earlier than normal for production considerations. We should be back to our normal schedule starting this coming week. There are so many things that are worthy of discussion, but I want to start with something that broke yesterday in the Washington Post. And for a lot of people, although it was the number one trending item on Twitter, which is not difficult to do because on a Friday evening, not that many people are on Twitter. But uh, for a lot of people, this probably doesn't seem like it's that significant or surprising, even among some people who are experts in the entire Trump, Mueller Russian investigation realm. But for me, this story was really big and significant and also infuriating. And let me explain what I'm talking about. I'm referring to the Washington Post's story on Rod Rosenstein. Now, Rod Rosenstein has been the assistant attorney general through all of this. Rod Rosenstein was the guy who uh, looked like a hostage standing behind Bill Barr during his infamous lying press conference before the Mueller report was even released. Rod Rosenstein has at times during the saga been portrayed as a hero. And this has always been a little bit confusing to me because I'm like, wait a minute, if Rod Rosenstein is really a hero in all this, how in the world did he capitulate so dramatically to Bill Barr? He signed off on the bar summary, which was a lie. He stood behind him at the press conference, which was a lie. He, he, was, he was allowing himself to be used to substantiate a false narrative about this. This doesn't make any sense to me. Well, the Washington Post reported last night some context that I think provides an awful lot of light for what really happened here. And it's so frustrating to me that... Uh, even when we find out the real truth in fairly short order, I mean, we're less than two weeks since the Mueller report was released. Even when we find out the truth, so few people are still willing to pay attention, to put all the pieces together, to connect all the dots in a way that really changes the entire story in a very significant way. What the Washington Post reported yesterday is that Rod Rosenstein, Back in the fall of last year, now you may recall that there was a New York Times story in which Rosenstein was reported to have offered to wear a wire to try to record Donald Trump while assistant attorney general. (laughs) Now, Rosenstein has claimed apparently that this was a joke. He didn't really mean it, but there's been some evidence that contradicts that. But this was a huge story. And you may recall that Donald Trump called in Rosenstein, and it was presumed that Rosenstein was going to be fired at that point, because we all know Trump, and Trump wasn't going to stand for having his assistant attorney general, especially when his attorney general at that time, Jeff Sessions, had recused himself from the Russian investigation to a great frustration to him. So Rosenstein was a key blocker at this point, and a key blocker for Robert Mueller. Well... When they have that meeting, we've now learned that Rosenstein effectively got down on his knees and begged for his job, telling Trump that he was on his team and that he can bring this plane in for a landing. Now, that's incredibly important context for what really happened, especially when you look at the timeline for how this all went down. 
So Rosenstein, whether he ever really was a hero or not, I don't know. I'm At this point, I am of the position that Rosenstein may have tried to be a hero at the beginning, thinking, well, there's just no way people are going to stand for this. There's just This is just untenable. I mean, people are going to rally around people like me who realize that this guy is unfit for office, and we're going to do something about this. But then, as he realizes that the cult is staying strong and that that's not going to happen, he starts to worry about himself. He starts to worry about what's going to happen to him. What if he gets fired? And what happens to his future at that point? Because then he's a man without, without a country. And let's face it, folks. People who pursue this kind of power, they hold on to it with everything they possibly can because it's a huge part of their identity. We no longer have people in high positions, whether it's in the media or in our politics, who do it because they want to do the right thing. They do it for their own personal aggrandizement, their own sense of self-worth. I say this all the time about the media. In order for the media to work properly, you have to have people in the media that are willing to do the right thing and risk getting fired. No one in the media is willing to do that, one, because jobs are so scarce, and because the people who have pursued these media jobs are all narcissists who want to do this because they want to be famous, not because they give a rat's ass about the country or what's right or our future. None of that matters. So... Rosenstein effectively goes to Trump and he self-neuters himself, okay? He basically chops off his testicles and he hands them to Trump and says, here, here are my testicles, and in exchange for my testicles, do not fire me, please, boss. Another way to think of this is, and I've used this metaphor many times, this is HBO's mob boss, Tony Soprano, bringing in one of his guys who has indicated he might not be loyal. And in order to make sure that he really is loyal, some arrangements are made. Some understandings are come to. And it is this at this point that Rosenstein becomes neutered in exchange for his job. Trump decides, hmm, Maybe this is better than firing Rosenstein. And I'll give Trump some credit for this because, you know, the undisciplined Trump we think of is the guy who flies off the handle and for his own ego would fire Rosenstein right off the bat. But sometimes Trump, who I believe has multiple personality disorder, sometimes Trump can be an evil genius like a mob boss who understands what the angles are here. And he realizes, wait a minute, hold on. Rosenstein is offering me his testicles. If I have Rosenstein's testicles in a jar, then that means I can get rid of Jeff Sessions, which I've wanted to do for a long time, but I haven't had my own balls to do it because people will go bananas and his friends in the Republican Senate won't let me uh, put in who I want as an attorney general. And I got an election coming up, and I'm not 100% sure Republicans are going to hold the Senate. So if Republicans lose the Senate and I get rid of Sessions, I might not be able to put in anybody I want because now Democrats will control that process. So now that I have Rosenstein's balls, and now uh, very shortly after that, Democrats do not take the, the Senate. Republicans hold on to the Senate. In fact, actually gain two seats, largely because of the map, almost entirely because of the map, not because the, the country wanted a Republican Senate so much. But so now Trump looks at this and goes, okay, all right, I've held the Senate. I have Rosenstein's balls. I can now fire Jeff Sessions. That was Trump's thinking. Correct. And so he does it to no fanfare whatsoever. And this was, I still believe this was the key moment in this whole situation. The day after the election, in the midst of this batshit crazy press conference he holds, and all this news surrounding the midterm election, he fires his attorney general for no other reason. Let's be clear, Jeff Sessions was the most loyal guy to Trump there is. Without question. Correct. 
and he crapped all over him for one reason and one reason only. Sessions recused himself from the Russia investigation, which tells you, by the way, how terrified of the Russian investigation Trump really was and that the, the story in the Mueller report that his first reaction when Mueller was hired by Rosenstein, effectively, was, oh, dear, I'm fucked. Well, there's a reason why that was his first reaction, because he knew reality and he knew that that reality was not sustainable. So he needed to do everything he possibly could to cut it off at the knees. Well, when Sessions wouldn't do it for him, the day after the election, once he has a Republican Senate and he has Rosenstein's balls in a jar, now he fires Sessions. And he can do that because, as Assistant Attorney General, Rosenstein is no longer a threat. So he puts in Matt Whitaker, this goon, unqualified goon, who's going to do whatever the hell Trump wants, to, to hold the position until he can get Bill Barr, who's already auditioned for the job with this 19-page memo saying that Mueller is a joke and Mueller shouldn't be able to uh, indict for obstruction of justice against the sitting president. And in the meantime, something very critical happens. Now, this is somewhat conjecture on my part, but if you read the Mueller report, it, it's, it's very clear that this theory is consistent with everything in it. Mueller, at this point, I believe sees the handwriting on the wall. He realized that Sessions is gone. He sees Whitaker in there. He knows where Trump is going with this. And he decides he no longer has the time or the leverage to subpoena Donald Trump for an interview under oath, which is the key to this whole thing. You get Trump under oath, it's over. Because Trump will perjure himself before he's even (laughs) given his oath. There's, there's, there's just no chance that that doesn't happen. And his lawyers know this. Well, in the Mueller report, Mueller makes it very clear that his decision not to pursue a subpoena, which he knew Trump would fight and his lawyers would fight, was because he did not believe he had enough time. Well, why didn't he believe he had enough time? I mean, Trump's still going to be in office for another year and a half. He didn't have enough time because he saw what was happening at the DOJ. And as long as Sessions was recused and was attorney general and Rod Rosenstein was effectively in charge of the investigation and Rosenstein still had his balls, Mueller was fine. But Mueller realized at that point, I got to start closing up shop. And what ends up happening? He starts closing up shop. We did an interview on my previous podcast, which we played a clip of recently on the Individual One podcast, from Michael Isikoff. We did this interview in December of last year. He's the co-author of Russian Roulette. This was an interview that Donald Trump, ironically, tweeted three times about because he loved the content of what we were talking about because it was it was disputing the, the so-called Russian collusion narrative. Isakov said at that time it looked to him as if Mueller was starting to shut things down. That's December. This is a month after all this goes down and Sessions gets fired. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to do this math. So Mueller sees the handwriting on the wall. He decides I'm not going to subpoena Trump because I don't have long to live. And then... Once the report comes out, Rosenstein now having completely flipped, gone from prospective hero to a guy who's a eunuch, who's just trying to hang on to his own job and whose key card barely works at the Department of Justice, he signs off on the bogus Bill Barr, Barr summary and stands behind Barr like a hostage at that bullcrap press conference. That's what happened here, folks. Correct. And what's amazing to me is it's not difficult to figure out. It's not that complicated. And yet I've not seen anybody in the mainstream news media do the math on this. It's not difficult, folks. And this is incredibly important context. Because now we know for effectively 100% that this whole bar summary, that the whole bar press conference was a sham, it's a scam, it's a cover-up. This is a cover-up of the report. 
they successfully, at least within a third of the country, completely discredited what the report really was. And, and part of this is Mueller's fault. And I've been critical of Mueller for the last couple of weeks, and I feel more strongly about that now than ever. That the, and I, and I, I refer you to our interview that we did in episode number 24 of the Individual One podcast with Tom Nichols, who is a, a Russian expert and an author. And, and he and I talked about, okay, what, what should have been the headline from this? What should have been the emphasis that Mueller placed on what really happened here? And, and he actually even asked me, so what, what should Mueller have done? I said, and I believe this is 100% correct, the headline should have been, my report is incomplete. I cannot get to the bottom of this because there was too much obstruction. And I could not even interview the President of the United States. And I did not believe I had enough time to do so because I no longer believe that the Department of Justice is willing to support this investigation. Which, by the way, is part of the obstruction of justice. I mean, Trump effectively obstructed the obstruction of the obstruction. I mean, that's effectively what happened here. The the obstruction is still going on. Barr's summary and Barr's press conference you could argue, were obstruction. And now we have Rod Rosenstein telling Donald Trump at a key moment in this, I'm on your team. Let me bring this plane in for a landing. And what ends up happening? This goes as well as it, almost as well as it possibly could have based upon the facts. Because the facts are that Robert Mueller did not conclude did not conclude that there's no evidence of so-called collusion between Russia and the Trump team. In fact, he proved the opposite. He proved that there was, in fact, all sorts of evidence of collusion. He just couldn't prove a criminal conspiracy that that happened. Now, what does that mean? A lot of this is semantics. There's shades of gray in all this. Again, I am not suggesting that Donald Trump is a Manchurian candidate. I don't know to what level he is compromised by his relationship with Russia, but he is compromised to a certain degree. No question about it. And the idea that somehow taking information, as Rudy Giuliani has said, taking information from the Russians, there's nothing wrong with that. What do you mean there's nothing wrong with that? Forget about the ethics of it. From a practical standpoint, that compromises you to a foreign adversary. And Trump's behavior is 100% consistent with that. But this Rosenstein story really pissed me off. One, because no one's going to get it. No one's going to put all the dots together, even though it's not even that difficult. But also, it goes to to one of my basic premises of the way that the Trump world works. You lie your ass off. And then once people figure out it's a lie, it's too late. Because you've already gotten a huge head start. And the damage has already been done. And if Rod Rosenstein had not been compromised, let's pretend he didn't sign off on Bill Barr's summary and he didn't stand behind him like a hostage. Then immediately, immediately would have been legitimate to, to greatly question what Bill Barr was doing. Rosenstein provided cover for Bill Barr. And what Bill Barr did, and it's, it's, even though it's not a majority of the country, it's enough to sustain Trump. He gave them all they needed to hang their hat on that the report was a big nothing. When it's not a nothing, the report is a smoking gun. And if it had been portrayed as, look, there's so much obstruction here, I can't come to a conclusion. That's a totally different ballgame. Now, that's not going to change the core of the cult. The core of the cult isn't going to read the report. They have no ability to understand it. They don't want to understand it. They're going to believe whatever it is Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity tell them. I love the poorly educated. But that's not the entire Republican Party, all right? It's a, I don't know what the percentage is. It's way higher than, than it should be or what I want to comp- contemplate. But it's not the entire Republican Party. There's different levels of the cult. And there's a, there's a chunk of that cult that would have been movable on this. 
I don't, again, I don't know what the exact percentage is. But as it is, there's enough of that cult that has completely disregarded what Mueller has done to where I believe Trump is safe from ever being removed from office and maybe even being as damaged politically as he ought to be. Because this ought to be DOA for 2020. And it currently is not. Now, the poll numbers, I mean, there's the, the biggest poll out recently has been an ABC Washington Post poll. And, and, and they're interesting, but they're also depressing, some of these poll numbers. By a 53-31 margin, Americans do not believe that Donald Trump was exonerated by the Mueller report. 53-31. Now, it depends on how you look at it. That's good news because that's correct. However, the report clearly does not exonerate him. So why is that not 100%? <laughs> why, why are only 53% of the American people understanding that the Mueller report does not exonerate him when it specifically says we did not exonerate Donald Trump? In fact, even Bill Barr was forced to use that phrase in his summary and in his press conference. And then there's that 31%. That 31% there, that number, I think, indicates how large maybe the core, maybe not the, 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 the inherent core, but the larger core of the Trump cult. That's how large it is. 31% of the country, they don't care what the hell the facts are. They don't care uh, anything other than what maybe Fox News Channel and talk radio tell them. So that 31% is probably unmovable. If you're saying, no, Trump was exonerated by the Mueller report, that means you didn't read it. That means that, at best, all you heard from was Sean Hannity and Rush Limbaugh. That's a large number, and that's probably large enough under the worst of circumstances, unless there's an economic collapse, to keep Donald Trump in office because he's not going to be removed by Republicans who control the Senate. Now, 41% of those who were polled in this poll say he did not commit obstruction of justice. That's a small number. 47% say that he did. But that 41% is basically his approval rating within a couple of points. You basically have to be a Donald Trump supporter to conclude that he did not obstruct justice. And those people are allowed to say that because Mueller stupidly didn't conclude it, even though the evidence in the report makes it overwhelmingly obvious that he did. Correct. So Mueller does Trump a humongous favor by not coming to a conclusion because it allows that 41% to believe what they wanted to believe in the first place, which is that this is all bullcrap, even though it's not. In the same poll, 56% of the American public do not believe we should begin impeachment proceedings. <clears throat> that's a big number. It's, <clears throat> that's a majority. But guess what? That's actually um, not as good as the numbers that were the case for Bill Clinton when he did get impeached, which is important to point out. I mean, Bill Clinton was impeached on far less significant issues, although they were similar. He was impeached with a, a, an approval rating that was way higher than what Donald Trump currently has and with far fewer people in favor of impeachment than are currently in favor of impeachment with Donald Trump. So he was impeached with, Bill Clinton was, with far stronger numbers, both with regard to personal approval and whether or not he should be impeached. Republicans in that time in 1999, actually did the right thing against the poll numbers. And it was perceived as if they suffered for that. Now, they did suffer a little bit. Some of those involved suffered. Newt Gingrich did. Bob Livingston did. But I will maintain, if you look at the record, I mean, they won that 1998 House of Representatives election, not by as much as what was perceived as they should, but they still won which in that era was a rarity for Republicans to win midterm elections. And then they won most of the elections going forward, including the, 20, the, the 2000 presidential election, who, by the way, we elected the guy who was the son of the guy Bill Clinton replaced, which is as pretty much as strong a repudiation as you can get. So the idea that somehow Bill Clinton was 
hugely benefited by impeachment or that Republicans were damaged by impeachment is just not accurate. And some people on the left have started to see this. I saw that Lawrence O'Donnell of MSNBC uh, made this argument and tweeted about it, and it was a popular tweet. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I mean, at least, you know, it's, it's a strange world when John Ziegler and Lawrence O'Donnell are, are on the same page. But the, the truth is the truth, and history is his history. Interestingly, there's some also uh, some data about Bill, uh, Bill Clinton. There's a Freudian slip. Donald Trump's lack of trustworthiness. Less than 30% of Americans now believe that Donald Trump is trustworthy. Less than 30%. Correct. I mean, that's a dangerous number. Forget about politically. That's a dangerous number simply from the standpoint of what happens in the midst of a crisis where you have to turn to the president of the United States for moral leadership, to somebody who has some semblance of credibility. Like, for instance, if we ever have to to make a major military maneuver or, God forbid, go to war, you don't have when you less than 30 percent of the American people believe you're trustworthy. You do not have the moral standing to lead in a crisis. You do not have the moral standing to send American soldiers into combat because all anybody hears when they hear you talk is. And that has an impact. Let me give you a a hardcore example. Donald Trump is somebody who has been perceived, I think understandably so, as an an anti-vaccination guy. He's one of these nut jobs that thinks that that vaccines may cause autism. He's, He's never been fully on board with that, but he said things that are consistent with that belief. Well, we've got a measles outbreak right now, including right here in Los Angeles, two Southern California universities, including UCLA, have have had to take dramatic action because of a measles outbreak. And part of this is because uh, of the anti-vaccination movement. By the way, part of it is also in, in all likelihood because of illegal aliens, but no one wants to talk about that part, even Trump hasn't directly made that argument. But uh, the reality is, so Trump goes out yesterday and says that people really ought to get vaccinated, which is the right thing to do, all right? I mean, that, that's, the, that's a point where the President of the United States, his word matters. It's not a, a direct policy issue, but, but traditionally, the President of the United States has had that bully pulpit to be able to get the American people to do the right thing in potential crises. Trump doesn't have that authority. Other than within his cult, who's going to believe Trump that we really all need to get vaccinated? And here's a guy who's an an, apparently an anti-vaccine guy. And so it's just a small example, though it's significant here in Southern California, of where he's not fit to do the job, even of the basic stuff, and this is why your credibility matters when you're president. He shouldn't be throwing away, which he's already done, throwing away all of his credibility with 70% of the American people all to protect himself. That's the part of this that is so frustrating, so infuriating. It's not for some greater cause. It's not like he's lying his ass off to save America and that the ends justify the means. He's lying his ass off for himself. Correct. That's the part that is so infuriating. And so what's going to be done about this? Well, I, I don't know. I don't have an answer to that because I am not convinced he's going to be impeached. In fact, I, I, I am of the belief that uh, there's some tea leaves that indicate that he probably won't be impeached. You know, last night on Bill Maher's show on HBO, which was fascinating for another reason, which I'll get to momentarily, Adam Schiff, who is the head of the Intelligence Committee, basically, uh, he, didn't, in fact, he didn't directly say there's not going to be impeachment, but he, even he starting to turn to, well, let's vote him out of office in 2020. No, no one's giving up on impeachment because they know that 
among the liberal base, that's basically uh, blasphemy at this point. But when even Adam Schiff is saying, let's focus on winning in 2020, that's a tell to me. That's a tell that that this probably is not going to happen. Even though from a historical standpoint, I've said many, many times that it should. I'll probably do an entire episode of the Individual One podcast coming up on why I believe that it's the right thing to do and the smart thing to do for Donald Trump to be impeached, even though he cannot, in all likelihood, be removed by a Republican Senate. You're probably saying, well, okay, on what basis? Well, you know who put out a hell of an argument for Trump's impeachment, which in a rational world should have resonated in a massive way? Andrew Napolitano of Fox News Channel. I mean, Andrew Napolitano, it's strange when you're in tough times, who steps up and who doesn't. Sometimes the people you expect to step up never do, and the other people that you think, well, geez, he's never going to step up, uh, actually surprise you. And Andrew Napolitano is not a guy who I've ever had much respect for. I've always figured him to be just a, a normal Fox News hack who just wants to be on television and who really isn't all that qualified. They refer to him as, as Judge Napolitano, but his, his background it really isn't all that impressive. And, he's, and in the past, he has articulated a lot of very pro-Trump views. And so if, if you made a list, I mean, I, you know, before Charles Krauthammer died, I would have said Charles Krauthammer for sure is the guy on Fox News Channel who will stand up and say, no, enough is enough. This is wrong. Donald Trump's got to go. But since he's dead and Britt Hume got uh, his soul removed and, uh, you know, there's Shepard Smith, but he's more of a news guy. Chris Wallace has said a few things, but Chris Wallace has multiple personalities as well. But it was Andrew Napolitano who put out a, a, a very scathing attack on Donald Trump on the issue of obstruction of justice. And I urge you, if you, if you want somebody who is not perceived as, as a lefty, who clearly has a self-interest in defending Trump because he works at Fox News Channel, go ahead and Google Andrew Napolitano's argument on obstruction of justice. And I think it's actually moderate. I don't think he goes overboard. I think he just takes the bare bones minimum of what Mueller set out. And he articulates exactly why it's totally wrong for a president of the United States to get away with that kind of stuff. Especially when you're president. It's one of the many elements of this that people seem to not understand or forget. Trump gets treated like he's a normal citizen doing this kind of stuff. Oh, no big deal. There was no proven underlying crime. It's just obstruction. Who cares? Maybe if you're an average citizen. But not when you're president of the United States. Not just from the standpoint of what that position used to mean. We're better than that. No, I'm talking about from the standpoint of what that job is. And, and, you know, there's a reason why the founders, and I'm sure they're rolling over in their graves now, because they never anticipated, they didn't set the system up for a Donald Trump to be president. They never thought someone could be president and do some of the things that Trump has done. So that's why they gave the president some of the freedoms and protections that they did. They thought the people and the Congress would hold a president accountable, but they never anticipated Fox News Channel providing the president of the United States with a cult that was going to do whatever the hell he wanted and that the Republican, the, the, the people of that person's, the, the president's party in the Senate and the House were going to be too terrified to do anything. Part of the problem here, and there are many problems, is that our laws were never set up for this set of circumstances. I, I've even suggested to my good friend, Democratic Congressman John Yarmouth, who was involved in another controversy I'll get to momentarily this week, Democratic Congressman John Yarmouth, I, I've joked with, not only half-joking with him, I said, look, if you guys don't impeach, at the very least, you need to pass some new bills addressing some of the loopholes that Donald Trump has run through here. You could call it the things the founders never thought a president could think to get away with act, which he thought was pretty funny. 
And he, he said that he would suggest that to the, to the rest of the uh, chairman of the Democratic uh, House of Representatives. To me, that's one of the many things that can be done if you don't impeach. But impeachment still has value, at least from a historical standpoint, as a black mark. So that this does not go down as something for which there was no accountability. So check out Andrew Napolitano's argument. I mean, if if Donald Trump was innocent, if he had really been exonerated, you would not be seeing Andrew Napolitano of Fox News Channel taking a career risk to articulate in very grave terms why it is that what Donald Trump did was totally inappropriate and makes him unfit for office. Now, he doesn't suggest he should be removed, but he certainly suggests that impeachment is a legitimate remedy under the circumstances. Now, why we're likely not to get there, of the people I am currently blaming, I blame Robert Mueller for part of this. I've written columns about this. I wrote one where I suggested that Robert Mueller had been intimidated by Donald Trump's witch hunt mantra and that he had actually gone incredibly easy on Donald Trump in every possible way, not pursuing the subpoena, claiming that he couldn't indict because of DOJ policy, not coming to conclusions on obstruction of justice in circumstances where Trump clearly obstructed justice and the evidence is overwhelming, taking an incredibly narrow view of what his job was with regard to the so-called collusion issue, saying that basically if we don't have a written agreement between Russia and the Trump team, that it doesn't count as conspiracy or collusion. All of these things indicate that Mueller was on the opposite of a witch hunt that he bent over backwards for Donald Trump. Why? Who knows? Was it a little bit of intimidation because he didn't want to look like he was on a witch hunt? Is he so by the book that the law just didn't play into his favor and actually played into Trump's favor? Is it a little bit of both? I'm not sure. But in another indication of the strange, strange world we live in, I referenced Bill Maher earlier. I tweeted out his commentary on this on my Twitter feed, which I urge you to check out. Bill Maher, who I do not like, a guy who's a liberal, although he's a libertarian, which I also consider myself to be, but he's not a dumb guy. Occasionally, he will say things that are quite intelligent, but he and I have disagreed a lot in the past. But Bill Maher, in a way that almost felt like he's been reading my Twitter feed and my columns, I'm not suggesting that that's the case. I'm not accusing him of plagiarism, although I could make a hell of an argument for plagiarism, because his commentary last night was exactly, just not big picture, what I've been saying about Robert Mueller. He even used some of the same phrases. In one of my columns, I referred to liberals believing that Robert Mueller was Superman and he turned out to be Clark Kent. Well, Bill Maher actually says we were looking for Superman and he turned out to be Clark Kent. That's a direct quote from Bill Maher last night. I also said that clearly what happened here was that Robert Mueller put down breadcrumbs for people to figure out where to go to impeach Donald Trump. That's a direct quote from me. Last night, Bill Maher said, breadcrumbs are not enough. We're not smart enough anymore. You have to, we're like a shortstop who can't move. You got to hit it right at us. I I mean, I was like, wow. (laughs) I don't know what to make of the fact that Bill Maher and I are in the same wavelength, but it's part of it's disturbing. And again, I'm not suggesting plagiarism, but... uh, I don't know if it's a great minds think alike, because I, I wouldn't consider Bill Maher to be a great mind, but I believe he's right here. And I urge you to check that out as well. That effectively what happened, and even and this is almost another quote from John Ziegler, he allowed the bad guys to win. Maybe it was because he had to he felt like he had to go by the book, but the bad guys are gonna win here because Mueller effectively wimped out. And to me, the biggest wimp out was pretending that he finished his investigation when he did not. That's what Mueller should have done. I'm a big believer. And if you're going to criticize somebody, you have to say, okay, what should they have done differently? Mueller should have said, look, um, I'm sorry. I tried for two years. I'm going to put my hands up in the air. I, 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 I found out a lot of stuff. This stuff is bad. I think we ought to take a look at this. Congress, you ought to take a look at this. 
but I cannot come to any conclusions about any of this because there was just too much damn obstruction. We had people taking the Fifth Amendment. We had a president of the United States refusing to do an interview as he promised 100% that he would. He delayed forever and ever giving his written answers. He said 37 times he could not answer, he could not recall things that were clearly memorable for a guy who claims to have the greatest memory in the world. We've got people who destroyed evidence, communications that were destroyed. I cannot come to any conclusions here. We need further investigation, and the special counsel is not in a position to do so because the Department of Justice no longer supports a full investigation. That should have been the headline from Robert Mueller. Is it possible that if and when he testifies to Congress that that picture might become more clear? Yeah, I guess so. My guess is he'll probably hem and haw over that too. But it doesn't matter because at that point it'll be too late. People have already made their decisions. And I'm not suggesting that we ever would have gotten to a shot to where Trump would have been removed from office. But if Mueller had handled this this, uh, factual record differently, I think we could have come damn close. It would have been damn close for even Republicans in the Senate, enough of them, to bail on Donald Trump. But now that the narrative has been set, that's going to be next to impossible, especially when Mitt Romney pokes his head out and he gets decapitated by everybody, including frauds like Mike Huckabee. So, and and I, I mentioned Fox News Channel being key to all of this, holding together the cult. The, I've said this for years Trump is focused on the cult because as long as the cult hold, holds firm, he's untouchable because Republicans control the Senate and you need two-thirds in the Senate to remove. There was a story out in Vanity Fair this week that in a normal presidency would be of massive, epic, scandalous proportions. And I guarantee you 95% of the American people haven't even heard about it. Vanity Fair was reporting that when Fox News Channel's Tucker Carlson and Janine Pirro were recently under fire, Tucker Carlson for some inappropriate comments he made about women on a talk radio show many years ago, and Janine Pirro for, for uh, issues that she had uh, made a, a big deal out of that ended up getting her suspended for a couple of weeks from her weekend show on Fox News Channel. Now, both Pirro and Tucker Carlson, more Pirro than Carlson, are huge Trump sycophants. Tucker Carlson, who I used to briefly work for and knew a little bit, is one of those who I'm mildly stunned what, what a complete sellout and joke they have become on behalf of Donald Trump. Janine Pirro, not so much. But we now know from Vanity Fair that when both of them were under fire, the President of the United States called Rupert Murdoch. Rupert Murdoch, the head of the company who owns Fox News Channel, and told them, or told him, to not back away from Tucker Carlson and Janine Pirro. To not fire them, to put them back on the air, and to be supportive of them. That is so beyond inappropriate for a president of the United States to do. And if Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama or anybody else in the Democratic side ever did that, conservatives would be having a shit fit over this. And it's not just inappropriate. When you're the president of the United States, you control, at least in theory, all sorts of elements of Rupert Murdoch's business empire. So when you're calling as president, to vow, you're not just vouching for a friend. You are implicitly implying that you as president of the United States have the power to either help or harm you, Rupert Murdoch. And so you're using the leverage of your position, which is the most powerful position in the world. You're using it for your own personal benefit to protect People who are supporting you politically. Fox News Channel has effectively become a political arm of the White House. At least 80 to 90% of the content. And clearly 100% of Carlson and Pirro's shows. And so Trump does this, which no other president would have ever 
dreamed of doing, if only because they couldn't get away with it. And Trump not only does it, but it's effective, and it's not going to harm at all, all, because there's so many other things to talk about. No one will focus on this. It's impossible to 100% prove, and we just move on in this hourly news cycle where there's something else crazy going on to take our focus away and distract us from. But this story alone should be massive. And then hilariously, Sean Hannity, and I don't believe this is true. I think this is something Hannity has leaked because he's in contract negotiations. But Sean Hannity is claiming, uh, or people on his behalf are, are claiming, whatever, it's being reported that Hannity has told Fox News Channel that he might bail on Fox News Channel. Get this! Because they're not supportive of Trump enough! Not supportive of Trump enough! How how supportive does Fox News Channel need to be of Donald Trump? I mean, this is for Sean Hannity to claim that, sh- that Fox News Channel is not supportive of Trump enough is kind of like a John complaining that his favorite prostitute doesn't fake her orgasms convincingly enough. I mean, my God, what more do you want? You're you're already a paid whore for the guy. You can you can only go so far. Now, to me, I, I think this is a, a contract negotiation ploy by Sean Hannity because where the hell is Sean Hannity going to go? There's no place else Sean Hannity's going to go. He's not going to give up his TV show. One American News Network isn't going to be able to afford to pay him. One American News Network, that, which tries to even be more sycophantic towards Trump than Fox News Channel. In fact, that, that's basically One American News Channel's brand. That's their slogan. More sycophantic to Trump than even Fox News Channel. I've been to One American News Channel on multiple occasions. It's basically uh, a couple of offices in a strip mall outside of San Diego. There's nothing there. Okay, So they're not going to be able to afford to pay Sean Hannity. Um, and then another story that fits into this category of things that if Barack Obama, Obama did them or if the Clintons did them, the conservative media would be on fire 24-7 alert. There's this story out about how Otto Wambier came to the United States just before he officially died. You remember Otto Wambier, who was taken effectively hostage in North Korea, the American student. He comes back in a coma. He dies soon afterwards. Trump actually took credit for uh, getting him released. And then outrageously, which again, we've forgotten so many outrages ago, where he takes Kim Jong-un's word for it, that he had nothing to do with Otto Wambier, and that this wasn't his fault, uh, which the family strongly disagrees with, which logic contradicts. So the reality is that we now have a new story out about this that should have been even bigger than it was. In a normal presidency, it would have been. It's been reported that North Korea demanded $2 million from the United States to pay, forget this, Wambier's medical expenses. So they take a perfectly healthy American and they return him in a coma after being tortured, and they demand $2 million, allegedly for his medical expenses, expenses, essentially as an extortion for the exchange of his almost dead body. Now, when the story broke, the White House did not confirm or deny that the money had actually been paid. Well, what does that tell you? If they don't deny it, that means it's almost assuredly true that they paid it. Correct. And then the next day, because Trump got a little bit of heat for this, the next day Trump comes out and says that he did not, the United States did not pay the $2 million for Ottawa Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. Why in the world should we believe it? And therein goes to the heart of the biggest problem with the Trump presidency. When you cannot believe anything he says, when everything he says, even trivially, can be considered... Lie, 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 lie. 
then why believe this when we have no other evidence to go on? In fact, we have some evidence that the report must be true because it was not immediately shot down by the White House. And why was it not immediately shot down by the White House? In all likelihood, because there's some truth to it. But they didn't confirm or deny it because they never know what Trump's going to say, which should be disturbing enough in itself. They don't know whether or not to tell the truth or to lie, or they might not even know what the truth is. So everyone's running around their backhand, terrified of whether or not Trump's going to go with the truth or make up some cockamamie story. So I don't know for sure whether or not we paid $2 million effectively in ransom for an almost dead body after North Korea had tortured and effectively killed Beer. I don't know. But I do know this. I do know that it's terrifying that I don't even believe the President of the United States when he tells me that we didn't pay it. And I have no reason to believe it. None. In fact, if anything, I have more reason not to believe it than I do to believe it. And so think about what happens in something much bigger, much larger than even this. Not that this is a trivial issue. This is a key issue, especially given everything that's going on with North Korea and how it looks to me as if Trump has been hoodwinked by North Korea from day one. We've gotten nothing out of that whole situation, and North Korea has gotten everything they could have possibly wanted. Everything they could have possibly wanted with elevated respect and Trump kissing their ass and meeting twice. And, and, you know, they they didn't even have the capability of doing anything because their weapons program had imploded. It appears as if they're still working on it. We may have paid them $2 million for for the privilege of getting a dead body back that they tortured and killed. I mean, I can't think of anything that North Korea hasn't gotten out of this whole deal that they could have never ever dreamed of and would never have dreamed of getting with any other president. And all Trump cares about is he got some positive headlines and a lot of attention and he got to play as if he's world leader and great negotiator when he's not. And it's just pathetic. It's sad and it's dangerous. And in a second term, inevitably there's going to be far larger issues that are similar to this, where we're going to need to know, can we trust the President of the United States or not? Statistically, it will be impossible for us to get through the next five and a half years without a major crisis of some sort. Now, while it's not directly related to Donald Trump, I do feel as if I'm obligated to at least mention the bizarre thing that happened with regard to my good friend, Congressman John Yarmuth, who's a Democrat from Kentucky who has been on this podcast and my other podcast many, many times. We've been friends for, my gosh, at this point, we've been friends now for like 16, 17 years. We used to host a television show together in Louisville, Kentucky. We're golf buddies. We still talk on a fairly regular basis. And uh, John Yarmouth, you may recall, is the guy who on this program admitted that I had changed his mind in favor of the impeachment of Donald Trump. Well, John Yarmouth became embroiled in one of the bigger news stories that he's ever been involved with this week, which tells you an awful lot about how broken the news media is and how pathetic our culture is, because this should not have been a major news story, but it was. Here's what happened. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the 27, is she 27 years old, something like that, a Democratic congresswoman from New York who uh, is all the rage because the right loves attacking her and the left loves everything she says because she's cute and she's fun and she's hip and she can dance and she says controversial things. Sometimes she says idiotic things. Well, she tweeted out a, a photo of an older guy, an older white guy, with a cardboard cutout of herself. And she said in the tweet, that uh, something to the effect of creepy old male Republican congressmen are uh, posing with me as if, you know, somehow this was evidence that creepy old uh, white male conservatives, I don't think she said white, but it's clear the guy was white, uh, that uh, these creepy Republican congressmen have a thing for her. And here they are posing with her cardboard cutout. And she tweeted that out. And everything she tweets is almost as popular as what Trump tweets. She's that popular on social media. And, and of course, immediately everything she tweets 
the, the rest of the media has to jump all over because they know, ooh, free clicks, because everyone will click on something that's AOC, because Republicans hate her and liberals love her and she's cute and young and young people will click on this. It's a lot like what happened with Sarah Palin, only uh, maybe even more exaggerated in some ways. But there's no question the fact that she's an attractive female plays an important role in this. So she tweets this out, and there's just one major problem. And that major problem is that the guy who was standing next to the cardboard cutout was not a creepy old Republican congressman. It was John Yarmuth, my friend, the Democratic congressman. I don't know why he was standing next to a a cutout of of AOC, but it was certainly not in any way uh, uh, critical of her. I'm sure it was a compliment to her. He was probably at some event where someone had put up a a cardboard cutout, and as a joke, he took a picture with with the cardboard cutout. And then somehow this becomes comes to the attention of AOC, and she tweets this out uh, in, a, in a rather derisive fashion. Well, of course, the media goes bananas because, oh, she's such a moron. She tweeted out a picture of John Yarmuth, who's a Democrat, when she said it was a Republican. And, oh, by the way, they're even co-sponsors on the same bill. Now, I'm not going to defend AOC. It was a dumb thing to do. She's, you know, virtue signaling at all times. And, oh, my gosh, as if somehow there would have been something wrong with a Republican uh, posing with the cardboard cut out of her, but okay, whatever. Uh, and and she certainly no- should have known who John is. I mean, John is the chairman of the budget committee, for damn sake. <laughs> She's one of the leaders of her caucus. It's not like there's thousands of people in the caucus. There's like 230 people in the caucus. She, If she's paying attention, she should know who John Yarmouth is. Now, uh, John, of course, took this all in good humor and... Um, he and I communicated via text as to how to respond to this because I knew he would try to be funny about it. And I suggested that he use the fact that he really was a Republican many, many years ago. People don't know that. Back in the 70s, he he was a Rockefeller Republican. And I said, John, you know, you should compliment her on her knowledge of your history, that you actually were a Republican. You should also compliment her on the fact that uh, you, she thinks that you could pass for that much younger man today. That you're really, you know, you, you know, she must have mistaken you for the 1970-something version of John Yarmouth. He liked that, and I thought he was going to go with that, but it seems as if uh, somewhere in the, <laughs> the process of getting out a statement, his people must have convinced him to be more conventional. So he did mention the fact that he had been a Republican in the 70s, but he didn't go with the, the, uh, the second part of that. But, uh, but here's the bigger issue. And I get these these Google alerts. I get Google alerts for two people in the world. Me, just to see what people are saying about me. And John Yarmouth, my friend. I have never gotten as many Google alerts on John Yarmouth, who's the chairman of the budget committee of the House of Representatives, than I have over this stupid story of AOC mistakenly tweeting his photo with a cardboard cutout of her. There is nothing I can think of that shows just how utterly stupid and broken our news media is than this. Correct. And I'm not just talking about, you know, online outlets. I'm talking about major news media, mainstream outlets, all the major networks. They Anything that has to do with AOC, they feel like they have to dive on because it's free clicks. And it's, you know what it is? It's just flat out ridiculous. And, uh... We're just so everything's just so broken. It's all broken. I do want to mention, of course, that Joe Biden entered the race for president officially. I've talked a lot about Biden. I wrote another column, which you can find either by Googling it or at freespeechbroadcasting.com, which was is the home for my World According to Zig podcast, which I do on weekends as well, which we, where we talk about things that are not necessarily related to Donald Trump. Uh, but I wrote a column about why if... Democrats really want to beat Donald Trump. They should nominate Joe Biden, at least assuming he can get through that process, the woke Olympics, unscathed. And I believe very strongly that that is a position that is based in logic. It is based in fact. It is based on an understanding of the way the system works and the way general elections work. And let's be clear, we already have all the data we need to know how to beat Trump in 2020, 
if that's what you want to do, because we have the 2016 election. We know exactly where Trump is vulnerable. You go after Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Florida. You win at least one of Florida and Pennsylvania, and then you win one other of those four, and Trump cannot win. He cannot win. It is not possible. It's not mathematically possible for him to win. There's a scenario where he could get a tie. Uh, but he cannot win under those circumstances, barring something just so far way beyond the realm of comprehension, even more outside the realm than what happened in 2016. So we already know where the battleground is going to be. And there's nobody currently running on the Democratic side or likely to run who can play as well against Trump in those states as Joe Biden. But I've also been very concerned that Biden's not going to be able to get through the process. And those concerns were not alleviated uh, over the last several days. Because while his announcement went well, I mean, he, he was able to go on The View and they softballed him. Oh, my God. The View just, oh, my God. It was worse than Fox News. Oh, well, I shouldn't say worse. It, was, it felt like it was Fox News Channel during a Trump interview. Uh, so, you know, but that's that's a great venue to be able to to kick off your campaign. He raised a lot of money from a lot of donors. So there's clearly a lot of support out there. It's not so much on Twitter. I can tell you that on Twitter. Boy, oh boy, these progressive nut jobs, they hate Joe Biden. And when this Anita Hill story came out, which was obviously timed to try to sabotage his launch, the New York Times has this interview with Anita Hill still complaining about how Joe Biden treated her in 1990 frickin' one. Oh, my gosh. Holy entitlement, Batman. I mean, can we get over ourselves, Anita Hill? 1991. Let's be clear. And most people, especially, you know, these young progressives, have, probably have no idea what the Anita Hill story was really all about. Joe Biden headed the Senate committee where Anita Hill testified against Clarence Thomas when he was up for a Supreme Court nomination. And Anita Hill did not allege rape. She did not allege some sort of sexual assault. She alleged some inappropriate sexually tinged comments by Clarence Thomas for which there's no real corroboration and which are contradicted by her own actions, including her following Clarence Thomas to another job after this allegedly happened. Now, I'm not saying that it didn't happen. I'm just saying she didn't think it was that big a fucking deal. And so let's be clear about what happened. She was allowed to testify by Biden, and then Biden voted against Clarence Thomas. What the hell more do you want? Now, because back then we were still living in a world where everything wasn't a cult, everything wasn't a tribe, some people ended up crossing the aisle, Clarence Thomas was barely confirmed. He would not have been confirmed today because every Republican would have voted yes, every Democrat would have voted no, and at that point, Democrats actually controlled the Senate. So that would not have, it would not have worked. Plus, there, you, you know, there was, the rules were different then. So, but the reality is this. Joe Biden did nothing wrong with regard to Anita Hill. Nothing. He voted against Clarence Thomas. He has expressed regret. He called her a few weeks ago and came close to apologizing, but she didn't feel like it was a real apology. Get over yourself. This was 1991. It was a pubic hair on a Coke, allegedly. That's it. And I, and I referenced to a movie, uh, Long Dong Silver or something, which I don't even really believe. I mean, Clarence Thomas has, in his entire career on the Supreme Court, has talked for about five minutes, literally. And here's the guy who's telling a co-worker about porn movies, Long Dong Silver. I'm sorry, just I, without evidence, I'm, I have a hard time buying that. But But the point of this is, that clearly there are perverse incentives for Biden to be sabotaged by the left and by the left-wing media in in a weirdly opposite way of what happened with Trump in 2016. In 2016, everyone was incentivized to jump on the Trump train, partially because no one thought he would actually win. And so it was all harmless fun. Well, everyone thinks Biden can win, so now they're all going to attack him. And I think there's a good chance he dies a death of a thousand cuts. 
Now, it's important to point out Twitter is not America. And the polls don't indicate this yet. But there's a long, long, long way to go before actual votes are counted in Iowa, New Hampshire, and elsewhere. And I don't know who's going to be the Democratic nominee. I really don't. It could be Joe Biden. But I think he's going to have a very, very difficult time getting through. I frankly am not that impressed with where he is from the standpoint of mental acuity. He has never been very intelligent. I actually think Trump is smarter than him in a lot of ways. He's not as knowledgeable. But Trump is clearly smarter when it comes to street smarts and maybe IQ. Depends on how you define IQ. But Biden is not a smart guy, and he seems to have lost a step. His interviews, he gets an enormous amount of respect. And so that's okay. When, when, you know, it's an amazing thing that happens. If you get respect in an interview, you're allowed to take your time. And if you maybe stumble over something or you can't come up with a word right away, it's not that big of a deal because no one's daring to interrupt you. That's not going to be the case in a Democratic debate. It's certainly not going to be the case against Donald Trump. There are going to be more combative interviews I'm not sure that Biden still has the fastball enough to get through the woke Olympics to mix a sports metaphor there. I really don't. My gut tells me he will not be the nominee. I think he has the best chance to be the nominee, but I think that that chance is less than 50%. And even if he does get through, I think he might be too damaged to still be the same Joe Biden that would be a sure bet to beat Donald Trump. So with all that put into the equation, I'm not going to change my percentages at all as we end each edition of the individual one podcast with the updated please no wagering percentages of whether or not donald trump is likely to finish his first term in office or be reelected. i'm going to keep it right at five percent chance that trump does not finish his first term in office and a 51 percent chance that he has actually reelected. now a lot of this has to do with whether biden's the nominee and whether or not he's unscathed and that, so that number can change dramatically as we go forward. But right now, based upon the first couple of days of the Biden campaign, that's where I'm at. That'll do it for this edition of the Individual One podcast. We'll be back on Wednesday morning, Los Angeles, California time with episode number 26. Until then, please remember to subscribe, rate, review, and share this via social media. Follow us on Twitter at Individual One Pod. That's Individual, the number one pod. My name is John Ziegler. You're listening to the Global Story Network. <laughs>